Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles topics that are tough. Is that There's a word for that, the, the uh, alliteration, I believe, tackle topics that are tough. And uh, didn't mean to do that necessarily. But our tough topic today, we're back into um, courts and custodies, but we're looking at it in a different, from a different standpoint. And my guest is Doreen Ludwig. Welcome, Doreen. Thank you for having me on your program. Doreen, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. You have a rather unique background. How do you, what, what keyword or phrase do you use when people say, what do you do, Doreen? Um, I am an indie author. I am a, now an advocate because I am a mother who lost custody. Um, I've become a warrior, and I have educated myself about the fatherhood program because I was told about the fatherhood program and how it impacts custody determination. So I look at myself more as an indie author and an advocate and a researcher. I am a lover of just reading, and that that has turned out to uh, benefit me in my work. The reason that you and I kind of hooked up is you know that I'm all about the research. I will hear people criticize research and say, well, you can't rely on research. I mean, you can't. Well, no, you can't. Not one piece of research. But if you start getting multiple pieces of research that are all indicating somewhat the same thing, then I think it gives us a very valuable picture of what's going on. I always picture it, liken it to standing in front of a very, very dirty window. Um, and if you clear off a couple inches at the bottom and you look out and you're looking at a shrub, you think, oh, it's all greenery out there well, then maybe you'll clear off another couple of inches in the top right corner and you see a street with traffic and you think, oh, it's all traffic out there. And as you keep clearing off these individual little pieces of the window, eventually you start to develop a broad picture of what's going on on the other side of that window. And that's how I view research. Eventually, we, the research allows us to get a broader picture of what's going on out there. Um, so you have to be leery of individual studies, but once you start accumulating studies, once you start putting them together and fitting them together, then it starts making sense and it becomes very valuable in showing us what's going on out there. And the research that you have done and that you have investigated is very interesting because I remember, and unless you're under about 25, you probably should remember that there are things called the fatherhood initiatives. There was a big push for fathers to be involved in their children. And this was mostly during the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. And, oh, my gosh, we started seeing studies that all these fathers were not involved in their children's lives. All these fathers were not taking responsibility. Well, gosh, this isn't good. And then we started having researchers come out about how children are damaged when they don't have any fathers in their lives. And, oh, gosh, that's not good either. And so we start getting people who are going to solve this problem. And this is where we come up with the fatherhood initiative. And Doreen, I'm going to let you explain a little bit more what we're talking about. Yes, one of the best uh, PDFs that I've found is was published by the Annie Casey Foundation, and it's called Making Fathers Count. I have a website which is www.macc. A-B-U-S-E, it's macabuse.org, and it's for Mothers Against Court Custody Abuse. I have these PDFs on a research sidebar, and one of the P- 
PDFs. It's called Making Fathers Count, a complete history of the fatherhood movement. They actually debated whether to call it a movement or um, uh, like they were basing it on now, the National Organization of Women, um, So, or a field, a movement or a field. Um, so this tells the whole history of how they have organized it, names, names. Um, I, I cover it a little bit. I cover some of it, the, the main points, in my second book, which is called Trumpian Abuse, Government and Family Systems That Prop Up the Male Regime. But anyway, Making Fathers Count, multiple pages, but it is a worthy document. And there is also a compendium of all this research that has been created by the fatherhood field that is uh, beneficial to men completely left out any negative behaviors like alcoholism, promiscuity, mm -hmm. um, of course, physical abuse and criminal behavior, etc. The assumptions of, and I think that for most people who've had a nice life and have never experienced child abuse or uh, intimate partner abuse or anything like that, it makes perfect sense. It's good for children to have both of their parents in their lives, and it's especially good for children to have fathers in their lives. And we saw a spate of research about how girls who were closer to their fathers were more successful in business as adults. And, I mean, we just had study after study after study, and so the government pops up and says, well, clearly this is a good thing, so we have to do whatever we can do to promote having fathers in their lives. The um, it's an idealistic country. view of men, and it is actually, um, it was pretty much created by the conservative movement. Okay, well, my point is that it was flawed in that it did not, all of those studies were flawed, in that, that they did not look at whether they were good fathers or bad fathers. Yes, and, so, and even the so, economic conditions of the family in general. Yeah. So the assumptions of all these studies, after which there was, you know, a rush to create programs and legislation, the assumption was that all fathers were good fathers. And that assumption has carried through to today. And much to the detriment of a lot of kids who are being placed with really crappy fathers um, in, in child custody. So one of the things that we talked about, Doreen, was talking about uh, titling this show, um, Sharing the Myths and the Truths About Fathers. Yes, and you were originally going to give me the opportunity to talk about how um, the support office has been incorporated fatherhood and, and made into support. Um, that's a boring topic, and so I started giving you all these uh, disclaimers of, you, you, uh, um, like you might not want to hear what I have to say, and you said, well, let's do a show about truth. And um, I thought that was a wonderful opportunity that I could share what I feel are my truths from the amount of research that I've read, read and mm -hmm. analyzed. Okay. 
So let's get into that. We've kind of laid our groundwork of why we're having this conversation 30 years later or 25 years later. I can't remember exactly how long. There are problems that were created. And I think some of these problems date all the way back to the 70s. I think early feminism, and as I said to you before, I I am proud to call myself a feminist and I am very supportive of feminist uh, ideology. However, I do believe that in the late 70s when women were espousing in, in efforts to get men to become more involved fathers, we really pushed this idea that men can parent every bit as well as mothers. Maybe, and maybe some men, but I think that that also laid the groundwork for shooting ourselves in the foot. We, we In our, our efforts to try and get fathers more involved in parenting, we didn't consider those fathers who were not worthy parents. And I think that what we ended up doing was creating, we've we've been laying groundwork for some of the parental and father's rights abuses that we've seen today. Would you agree with that? I would agree with you. And some of that is actually delineated in Making Fathers Count, where it gives the history of the program. Um, Women who, the original feminist women, were working women, unfortunately, raising the children was left out, women who raised the children and the caregiving women. Caregiving is a very important thing in our society, especially as people are living older, and it's left out of the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and we can criticize the feminist movement. I mean, you know, I mean... Going back to it was originally created for the wealthy, rich white girls. You know, I mean, we it, it, um, as, as one who wanted to pursue more of a professional career. And yeah. I'm not not to be critical, but just if we cannot have proper change, if we cannot identify the root causes and uh, the factors that go into making a current state. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we've we've laid groundwork by the feminist movement, which had its flaws. We laid groundwork with early studies from the 80s that said, oh, fathers are so crucial, and which I think were created. I think those studies were carried out to prove that, yes, fathers can be good parents. And, you know, parents can be good parents, and parents can be bad parents, and I have to throw this in, they can be male or female and be a good parent. What we are talking about in the, the crisis in the courts right now and with child custody, we're talking about the bad dads. That's who we're talking about. Those vast majority of great dads, they're fine. We're not talking about you. We're talking about this little group of abusers and controllers that are getting custody of their children. And it's well documented at this point that they are getting custody. Doreen, I want to go back to your background, your uh, experience with this phenomenon and when you first experienced it and when you first started to identify patterns that allowed this to happen. So tell us a little bit about why you even became involved in this area, your personal experience. I was married to a predominantly psychological abuser and I made the decision uh, that when I had two, I had two girls and I was a full-time mother and I'm just, realized that he was going to turn them against me and I needed to get a get a divorce 
And so when I've, we've identified certain patterns of what happens in, in typical cases. So the pattern that happened is that my ex hired a what's called a father's rights attorney. Um, they tend to be uh, geared towards men and they use certain tactics of litigation. And then they appointed a, a court service provider. This is a term that they use, court service providers. And he psychologically labeled me. This is another pattern that occurs in these cases, is that women are being psychologically labeled. There is a range of labels they use. In my case, they didn't even use a DSM label. They just said I had a constellation of mental illnesses. I find that once a woman is labeled, it never goes away. Um, even though I presented more than adequate proof refuting that, I had a, a counselor that actually in her own time came and witnessed for five hours, and she had DV experience, and she even wrote a 12-page report. But the court, another pattern that the court does is shut down you presenting evidence that refutes this psychological labeling or the false allegation that you are the unfit parent. So as you, you uh, women tend to try to fight the court and try to say, why aren't they taking my evidence? What There must be a lawyer out there. So as I was looking for a lawyer, I contacted the Pennsylvania Now, and they referred me to Liz Richards, who is an, an original advocate against the father father's rights. And she informed me about that the government was funding fatherhood programs and gave me some initial information back in 2006. And I just, along with another lady from the court, we started researching. And over the years, it's been over 10 years, I've built on my knowledge and I have amassed a lot of government and industry reports. Two of the reports mm -hmm. are um, HHS Office of Child Support reports. Uh, they're called Promising Practices and Strategic Planning Guide. Um, they're basically an outline of how to run these cases. Okay, so um, let me interrupt you a little bit here, Doreen. So what you're saying is, based on your personal experience, which was your first exposure to this, you identified a pattern. Your ex-husband hired a father's rights attorney, which are attorneys that specialize in making the case for fathers. Then there yeah, were false Yes, yeah, they're kind of trained in how to go about that, Yeah, how and to get an appointee. Yeah, I mean, you can Google father's rights attorney, and boom. Yes. People, you know, it'll pump up. So you notice this, this happened first. That, that your ex-husband hired a, an attorney who wasn't just a divorce attorney, but he was a father's rights attorney. Yes. Then false allegations started being made about you. Yes. And then you were what you called psycho-labeled. And I'll yes. tell you, I, you know, I, we actually laugh about this sometimes because, uh, you know, it, it, it's such a, the pattern that you're describing is so true because you get an abusive person, a controlling person, and his wife wants to divorce him, and the first thing that he starts doing is talking about how she's crazy. I mean, it's just like, boom, she's crazy. This just came out of the blue. This, you know, I mean, it's just yes. like 
by the book, you know, that they're just gobsmacked, that this, even if the woman has tried to tell them and over and over and over, no, 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 they're just gobsmacked by it. And then the, you, you start getting what you call the psycho labeling. You know, well, she, come to think of it, she did do this and she did do that. And sometimes the allegations are pretty blatant. And then the she was crazy. And then they start petitioning the court. Well, we need some mental health evaluations before we decide on these kids, the placement of the kids, because she's nuts. Now, isn't that interesting? Because before she filed for divorce, she was not nuts, so nuts that she couldn't take care of the kids. But as soon as she devi- files for divorce, all of a sudden she's too nuts to take care of the kids. So you have this psycho-labeling. And then you move into the legal maneuvers where yes. evidence is blocked. Uh, the experts come in, and I think that's what you're talking about at this point, is there are untold experts that earn a living, and I don't begrudge them that. I mean, everybody has to earn a living. But these are not, for the most part, volunteers. These are people who are earning their living, psychologists, uh, guardians ad litem, etc., who are the court service providers that you talk about and once you hit that stage it's really Katie by the door I mean it just uh, it seems to take off like a snowball down a steep hill when it comes to providing evidence against the mother and for the father well what what happens to a lot of women who are leaving a poor situation is they really expect to be helped and protected and believed. And what happens is immediate, almost immediately these tactics are, start to be used on force. And the people in the court, they, they, be, they in turn use that to point the finger at you and say, see, you must be crazy because of your behavior. And even if you go to court and present yourself as fully functioning and intellectual, they will still point at you. Um, I know my judge actually waved his hand from one side of the courtroom to the other and said, Dr. Ring here says she has a constellation. And as he said constellation, he waved his hand across the room. And he was uh, addressing the counselor that I had speaking up for me on the witness stand. And and she provided a very satisfactory answer. But this is just a tactic and a pattern to break you down uh, psychologically so that they can point the finger at you. Yeah. So these common common practices, finding the father's rights. Suppose that there are men out there who are going, yeah, but don't women do the same thing? Don't they find attorneys who are going to be sympathetic to the mother's practice? I, You know... I don't think so. From and well, this, I don't It's have my belief that in general the men have the money, and yes, there are women who have power and connections and who do do this, but the numbers are just not equal. Um, yeah, You know, exactly. 10% um, and, and of women versus 90% of men. <laughs> but I think that what you see with a lot of women, and again, anecdotal, I don't have evidence to prove this, um, but I think a lot of them are just so afraid and so concerned because don't forget they're leaving a person who has a history of control a history of winning and they're suddenly after living with this person for however many years and knowing that this is what this person does they win they they go to war they go to battle they win and now she is choosing to go to war with him 
Yeah, the thing is that you have some women who have discovered sexual abuse of their child from the father, and they go to court. Mm -hmm. That is what prompts them. Or they've gone to a shelter and they've been told you must leave him, and and that's what prompts them uh, to walk into court. Well, I think today not so much the shelter people are telling them that they have to leave them, but if you get involved with the CPS thing, if there's sexual abuse involved and CPS is reported, CPS will come to the woman and say, you have to leave him or we'll take your child away. But at the same yes. time, the courts are saying, you have to let this father have access to these children or we'll take your children away. Um, talk about a rock and a hard place. I mean, it's, yes. it's just a no, a no-win situation for many Absolutely. abused women. And one of the things that we were talking about before when we were preparing for the show, we were talking about some of the truths um, for women who go through these situations. And don't, you know, save the emails. Yes, I know that men go through this too, but the percentage is so much smaller than for the women. My father was an abused man, an abused husband, and an abused father. I know this happens. I am not unsympathetic to that, but I think we have to acknowledge and quit pretending that it's 50-50. It is not. It is not. Um, And so we have to acknowledge that this is happening mostly to women. And one of the truths that we talked about, you just hit on and we're always reluctant to speak about this and that is going through this process going through what you have to go through to try to divorce this man to keep your kids safe to get custody of your kids to try and follow all the rules that everybody is telling you you have to follow it's crazy making and if you didn't going through this process is are, are very high it's very high risk and we are yes. reluctant to speak about it because, as we mentioned before, at the beginning of the process, this pattern, all of a sudden, she's crazy, she's crazy. So if she starts, if she develops PTSD from this process or if she starts having psychological issues, well, that just reinforces, see, he said she was crazy, and bingo, there you go. The problem is chicken and egg. Was she that way before she started this process yes. and went through this extreme abuse? Um, and and, and what's sad is that... Some women come with economic shortfalls because, in my case, if you're a stay-at-home mother, he has the job. And you're, in addition to the stress of of seeing that they're attempting to take your children away, you have the stress of not being able to pay bills and even to properly care for your child. And there is a lot of pressure when you have a, a litigation case to hire lawyers and throw money at a case that is already bad. And this happens Mm -hmm. to a lot of women, even if they do wind up getting support, uh, they tend, they tend to keep throwing money at it or they beg their family and friends for loans and then they get ostracized from them and people get angry because all this money being thrown at the case doesn't change it. Yeah, And so well, the and stress yes. is, unfortunately, some women are committing suicide and some women do have mental breakdowns and many mothers have been reduced to not not being able to get up in the morning um, out of yeah. bed. And um, So this it's is what drives me because I'm a very strong person. I, I was raised by three generations of big city firefighters. And I just 
when I saw this occurring, I just couldn't believe it. And it's just absolutely wrong. People should not be treated this way. And I would like to see family court become what they claim it is, a place of of mediation and kindness. And what I've observed is the place of power and control. And it's it's quite scary to those who are absolutely. powerless. Well, and, and, you know, that's, you know, that's really very Pollyanna. We want this to be a place of mediation and, and cooperation and, you know, but by definition, yes. this segment of the population, the abusive men that we're talking about, you, that is, you can't work with that. You know, I, I, I have a, a son who said, talks about his um, uh, bigger, what's he called, bigger monkey theory. That there are some some people for whom, you know, you you can get together and you can cooperate and you can discuss and you can negotiate and business goes on. But for some people, like some groups of monkeys, they won't hmm. do that unless you're the bigger monkey. If you're the bigger monkey, then I know my place and I'm not going to give you grief. And some people who operate their lives as a big monkey will only respond to the bigger monkey. Am I making any sense? And I, uh, I You think- are. And what is sad is that when you're in the relationship and you have children, you can actually often on some level you can control that bigger monkey and protect the children you make him happy and feel that he is the biggest monkey but when you are under a court order that says you have the child this day and he has the child that day you have no um you cannot intervene when he attacks the child and then that is another layer of stress provided on the mother and Absolutely. frantic. And you have, what you have just described is the perfect conundrum ever asks when they hear about domestic violence situation is, why doesn't she just leave? Right? You've heard it. We've all heard yes. it. Yes. Why doesn't and she I just leave? And I think a lot of women matter? instinctively know that they really can't leave. That, that he will, he will the take children, the children and harm the children. Yeah. And if even if it's not physical, blatant physical harm or it's still there is still the potential for a lesser psychological harm that has just that's just as bad in the long run because um, not I mean I mean the statistics are clear if you are killed in a domestic violence situation it's you know predominantly when you're trying to get out of it yes so, and many men are trying to use the children to bring you back and to maintain yes. control over you through the kids. That's Absolutely. Just like when you're, not, when you're no longer in the house and they can't control you, what can they control? They can control the children, and that'll get you. And while they're getting control of the children, they'll control the legal system uh, through more resources or through continuous litigation or, you know, abuse through the legal system. And I don't know if you yes. know Dr. Karen Hunter, many women experience you know, some pretty devastating consequences, PTSD at the very least, from going through this legal system that, as you pointed out, does not protect her. The other thing I wanted to mention when you talked about women approaching a system, a legal system, 
I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, why doesn't she take him to court? Why doesn't she take him to court? Like somehow or other, if you've never been involved in this, you have this notion that the court is where you go to for justice and fairness. And no, forget that. Forget that. And I'm not saying that makes them evil. I'm saying that's not their purpose. They are not there for fairness and justice. They are there to carry out the law. So it's about the rules. I I don't think the general public could ever comprehend the amount of external people that can get involved in one custody case. Oh, Um, absolutely. You have psychologists and lawyers and even Child Protective Services can all get involved in your yeah. custody and case. And guardians had litem, and a guardian had litem on her side, a guardian had litem yes, on and, his and side. Yes, and they charge so hundreds of dollars. I, the public does not understand the level and the level of your inability to stop it. Yeah. You're right. You're right. It, it, as I said before, it's like that snowball rolling down that steep hill. Yes. Once, Once it has started, happened, it's almost impossible yeah. to stop. Yeah. And I remember hearing um, uh, lawyers say, you don't want to go to court. We're going to settle this out of court. You do not want to go to court. And I understand after having worked how, the last 10 years, you know, watching uh, these kinds of court cases. Of course not, because you have no control. And it, it just it becomes totally out of your control. But, again, you're dealing with the big monkey. And statistics and research shows that you don't have much clout in dealing with this big monkey, our abusive male. Um, So mediation is not going to work. You're going to take a beating no matter which way you go. Um, Some women... I, um, in my personal case, um, I walked away from the litigate, Solomon's Choice, but... um, because that I felt that my ex was more of a psychological abuser than a physical or sexual one, um, I determined that the children were better off. They ha- would have more stability just being with him than were if you I stayed in a relationship with their children. Well, were you allowed to if I stayed in a litigation situation, I would have been, I would have had to do supervises that I was crazy and I wasn't willing to do that, or that I had done something wrong. And they often keep women in supervised visits for years. It's a way of humiliating them and and demeaning their authority. And I also found out that they were institutionalizing a lot of the children. And as I found out the bigger picture of um, the father's rights people who were involved, um, I decided that as far as my children went, it was best for me to walk away. And mm-hmm. I did appeals, and um, one of the tactics is to obfuscate, uh, to throw so much garbage at the case that you can never get out of it. And I actually shut my case down, and my documents are clean. And I know that every mother would not agree with me, but I will tell you that I saved my ex a lot of money because they would have just continued the litigation till the children turned 18. And oh, yeah, he absolutely. Would have... And then even after that, 
I mean, I I can name you woman after woman who, you know, their oldest, their youngest child is 30, and yet the ex-spouse who got custody is who 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 is a millionaire, is still suing for $300 in back child support. You know, I it, it's just kind of yes, crazy. and and the sad thing is that type of person wants control. So I kind of modeled how to work with a person like that for them. So um, they had to figure out how to get the most out of him, and they're in decent colleges, and he's paying for it. And if we had litigated and he was angry, I, I know a lot of the men who say, well, the mom should pay or I'm not paying. But this way... He has control of them, so he's happy to put out his own money. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as I look at it, that's the best I could have done under those circumstances. Because one of the so the choices that the mothers are stuck with are excruciating. Yeah. And and as I said, mine was a better situation, but in your research and in your book, is that. If the father does gain custody, which happens very frequently, I think most people who have never been involved in this kind of thing don't understand how frequently it does happen with these abusive men. They just don't have a clue. I have a dear friend who worked in the courts her whole life, and yet she doesn't get it. You know, she had a a neighbor that moved in uh, next door to her um, with her mother. Her children had been taken away in a different state, and my friend, who is very knowledgeable, very well-educated, very, you know, but not about this issue, she said, well, she had her kids taken away. There must have been something she did wrong. And I said, not necessarily. And then she said, well, I, and then she moved away. She moved out of state. If my kids were in another state, I would never have moved out of the state. And I'm going, but you don't know. Maybe she, gave, maybe she was homeless because a lot of these women spend so much money that they are now homeless. And maybe she was suffering repercussions. And if she had a safe home to go to with her mother in another state, you don't know. You haven't walked in those shoes. But the assumption is that if you've lost your children, there's something wrong with you. You did something wrong. Uh, Yes, again, it's a Pollyanna view of the world. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And a misunderstanding, this whole concept that, you know, you go to court for justice and fairness. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you're looking for justice and fairness, go someplace other than a court. If it happens, yippee-skippy, that's a nice little sidebar. But, you know, you don't go there looking for that. You know, you go there looking for rules um, and uh, getting decisions on on whether or not somebody has followed the rules and punishments if they haven't. That's how it, it works. And I've spoken with lawyers before, and I said, I know you probably disagree with my take on it, but this is how I see it. And they go, no, that's pretty much it. <laughs> pretty much it. Uh, he with the most paper wins, you know, and uh, it's just. I, I feel that living under a court order of 5 o'clock Friday, you must bring the kid back, or if if the parents aren't even getting along, uh, the AFCC has developed what they call parallel pa- parenting. Mm, um, yes. The the push is for co-parenting that you share the children, and people who have these problems cannot. It, it, it doesn't happen. Somebody has to be in control, like you said, the big monkey. And so what the court has come up with is to have these 
parallel parenting plans. And it's just no way to live. And so to me, if you and he cannot communicate, if you cannot say, oh, you're going to be 10 minutes late, that's okay. Or, you know, if you're sick this weekend, well, that's okay. You see them next weekend instead. Or, you know, my mother's ill. I need to go visit her. Could you take the kids? If these things are impossible in your life, a court order is the most stressful thing. And it dictates to the minute everything that you do. Not only that, it dictates, it could dictate that you have to report it in a notebook. You have to say exactly what you have done with the child while you have it and get the other parent's approval, and it has to be filed by 10.30 p.m. Saturday night or Sunday night. The level of, of personal intrusion that is going on in family court is, would be unbelievable to the average American who is completely unaware that all this is going on and has developed over 20, 30 years. And I think that's the crux of it. Everyday people, unless they're involved in something like this, don't have a clue. They just have no notion that this is what is occurring. And I'm sure you're familiar with the ACEs study, um, which is becoming more and more uh, Yes, I am. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Folletti was on, actually on our show. And basically the ACEs study is a longitudinal study, 30-some years, where Dr. Vincent Folletti and his colleagues tracked children who had traumas in their lives. And guess what? If you have trauma in your life as a child and, it, and you don't get some serious help, you're going to have trouble throughout the rest of your life. Seems like common sense, but they had to have a, a few studies to document it. What happens with that trauma that those children experience when they are going through this with a, and, and end up having to go with an abusive parent instead of the parent that they're used to protecting them? Uh, it, it's not simple. It's not simple. Yes, and, and the level of abuse of the parent that you're going to go with, mm -hmm. or unfortunately it could be the person the parent marries or many times an abusive man lets his mother take over. And I I think that if you are an abuser yourself, there might be a tendency within the family. I, I know mothers whose children have been given to abusive grandparents um, mm -hmm. by way of the father giving them. Uh, but yeah. I, when I Googled ACE study, what came up was the Center for Disease Control. And yep. their solution to this life trauma and, and the negative effects was to come up with essentials for child maltreatment. And so they identified these traumas under three topic or four topic areas of physical abuse, sexual abuse, and psychological abuse, and neglect. Um, it does leave out like death of a parent, things you can't control, but the other, mm -hmm. other types of trauma. And so this is an action plan for how a community can actually try to have better outcomes with children. The whole fatherhood initiative program was built on 
the only factors that contribute to a child's having good outcomes versus bad outcomes is having a man in their life, a father. And that is just absolutely not the truth. The factors that contribute are the child maltreatment factors. And that would include poverty and all of the things that go along with poverty, like not having shelter, not having food, your parents not having these things, and, and, you know, being depressed because of it and unsafe neighborhoods. Anyway, so I would like to see the focus when we talk about children to look more at child maltreatment. I'll tell you a secret. AFCC even had a conference a fa- they, AFCC is the professionals that act in family court. They had a conference, and the question was called, do we need to consider child maltreatment? <laughs> That's actually common sense. But, you know, bear in mind that, you know, how did our court system start? Uh, you know, they were about property and things. And Yes, so when, when and, and that is what children things. still are, property in family yeah. court. You know who will who will get the table, who will get the car? You know that it, it's viewed in similar ways, and and at the risk of offending court personnel who might be listening, I mean I know you guys are trying, we know that you're trying, but there seems to be a major disconnect. I think that, and again going back to that whole '70s feminist thing where I believe we shot ourselves in the foot. I think judges today are bending over backwards. And as a matter of fact, you know, Dr. Meyer's study, uh, you know, a lot of these studies are showing this, that judges are more likely to give an abusive father custody, full custody, than the mother who's been the protective mother and caring for them. And I think the reason that they're doing that is because they're bending over backwards to show that they're not prejudiced in favor of the mother, that we're viewing this equal 50-50, and in their efforts to view 50-50, they're actually bending over backwards to view fathers as the better parents than the mothers. And my, they are actually thought. being trained. Um, every state has what's called, uh, out of the uh, HHS's Child Support Enforcement Office, uh, there is an access visitation coordinator, and every state has a person who is... Um, that is their job to uh, make sure that judges are trained in uh, the fatherhood initiative goals, uh, which are to ensure that that dads get some type of custody. Um, Where it breaks down is they never explain to us how much custody these fathers are getting. Um, And we have identified that there is a pattern of assigning support amounts to a mother, a full-time, a primary care mother, the minute she walks into when the litigation starts. And then the support amounts accumulate, and then eventually custody is switched. We call it the custody switch. And he is given primary custody, and then the support amount owed monthly is drastically reduced or swapped altogether. And then the state actually gets to report that the money is collected, 
when it's actually been switched. And this is unfortunately prompting a lot of uh, custody changes or custody switches. Yeah, I think that, and, that bottom dollar, bottom line dollar has a lot to do with the, the, the control, the power, and the money. Um, unfortunately, many men are willing to litigate because, and they are often told that they will be able to save money. Uh, the fathers' mm-hmm. rights websites uh, promote that. Yeah. Um, um, unfortunately, well, a lot, a lot of fathers' <laughs> rights uh, propaganda says that the mother will be after your money. I, I even heard a commercial on my local radio news radio station saying she might act like she's being willing to cooperate, but don't trust her. Call us. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! So there is actually a a good amount of 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 uh, networking and and propaganda out there to to get these men to file litigation, and um, as you said, the women are are falsely propagandized that they will get some sort of. Uh, protection or recourse in family court, or even that they can collect huge amounts of support and alimony. And me being a feminist... When we're we're talking about money, Doreen, I want to also point out that as a result of all this political fatherhood action stuff, men can actually get money. They can get financial help if they want to go after their children and custody. um, Men are actually getting um, free advice free lawyers, um, legal aid is, is required to help the men. Um, there are, are is a network, and over the 20 years of the program, the child support office has been turned into uh, a custody office for, they actually will initiate the litigation for the men if there is a, especially if there is a large support order or some of the fatherhood programs work in the prison, so the the support office will actually stop their support order or reinitiate it, and they will file custody um, litigation to get the man some type of visitation. visitation. Um, yeah. So there is a lot no. of uh, intertwining now of custody and support, and, and sadly... Um, the Obama administration uh, supported the change of the support office to also include custody, and now they have an HHS procedure that every support order must have a custody order. Yeah, which is... Um, so this is all very scary stuff, and it is my goal to educate the public that this is actually HHS policy, and if we do not understand it, um, it might happen to you or your daughter or uh, a friend that you know, and um, that person will most likely be devastated. And if you don't care about the emotional part of it, you should care about the financial part of it because once the women are ch- and children are destroyed, they cannot function and they cannot hold down jobs and they wind up being disabled or on SSI or um, some other tragic outcome that the taxpayers will pick up. Yeah. And, and uh, well, I, I mean, 
you know, the men, the, the it, it, fatherhood was in institutionalized under welfare reform, so there are two sets of standards men can um, collect as long as they are a father for as long as they need to, whereas women are under that five-year rule. And and men are being encouraged to take housing. Uh, they are told about getting the earned income tax credit where you actually would have to have primary custody to take advantage of that. Uh, so there are a lot of other incentives why a male would uh, pursue custody, the tax incentive alone. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as I said, I know there are people out there listening going, well, yeah, but, you know, this is a small percentage. Well, kind of, but the damage that can be done, and not just on those particular children, but the damage that can be done affects our whole society. Um, when somebody lives under this. We were very fortunate uh, during to have had some uh, representatives from an organization, its name escapes me right now, but it's an organization of children who were given to abusive uh, fathers for full custody. And then they turned 18 and left um, because the abuse doesn't just stop, you know. Okay. <laughs> it continues. Not and, courageous, um, chil- courageous kids? Yep, that's it. Courageous kids. Okay. That's it. And, uh, oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, I wish that every judge would have to hear, I, 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 you know, when they, when they appoint me empress, and I'm expecting that any moment, you know, um, when they appoint me empress of the world, I'm going to require every judge in every family court to meet and speak and learn from courageous kids because damage is being done to these children. And yes, I know that there are bad moms, but we're not talking as many as we're talking, you know, and you, you have to, you have to put your most effort where there's the most problem. And this is a huge problem. What's going on right now. And with custody reports, what what I see is your there is this perception that she did something wrong uh and that's why he was given custody. What I see yeah. is when many of the men are given full custody, the entire family of the mother is cut off. The children's possessions are left. Um they often lose a dog. Um some of the men move move away and they get away with it. Um, and so there's a bigger picture. And when you look at the bigger picture, you see that there is a problem. So these children are, are extremely traumatized. One of our children was featured in a Time Magazine article that was about children and anxiety. And it was claimed in the article that she was cutting herself and wanting to commit suicide because of technology, too much smartphone. And her mother, who had the custody switch happen to her, called up the reporter and explained to her the truth that these children went through horrendous litigation and they were taken to a different state, and they lost their dog, their mother, their entire maternal family, and that's why the daughter was 
cutting herself and wanted to commit suicide. And so the the examples, the children are out there. The other day when I got off the phone with you, the news report was about a mother who killed herself and her 17-month-old baby because Tarrant County, Texas, gave the father full custody. And she lived in Delaware. They were coming for her child. And and I just get a chill every story I hear. And you hear them. They're out there. And if people pay attention and ask questions, and and I hate to say it, but read. <laughs> I put together two really easily they're they're eighth grade level books. It it's not that hard. Tell us the name of your books and where people can get them. They are indie published, so they don't look fancy. I have no money, but uh so the first one is called Motherless America Confronting Welfare's fatherhood custody program um it half of it tells my story it's it's a little too long it's 300 pages the second half is research from 2015 so it it's introductory um my idea was to get the message out there and to find people who would work with me on that research the only person who volunteered to work with me on the research is dr leora rosen and she actually published an update also um, called The Hostage Child Beyond Child Sexual Allegations in Custody. And I might not have that right. Um, so then after that, I personally felt that domestic violence community um, was involved and was um, not accepting my my research and not working with us for their own reasons. So I got together a second book that I called Trumpian Abuse, Government and Family Systems That Prop Up the Male Regime. And that one uses numerous fatherhood reports and fathers' rights websites. It puts it together in a more feminist time frame, and it's it's only 136 pages, so it flows very easily. Um, it's more doable. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the you know it's a first book. It's a little, <laughs> and and they're they're available on Amazon. And I have a website www.maccabuse.org. I have a Facebook page, Doreen Ludwig. Apparently, it's only me and some German lady that does yoga and cooks or something. (laughs) Does she do that at the same time? (laughs) I'm easy to find. (laughs) Okay, because one of them, I've been told, is in the porn industry, so we won't even talk about those. <laughs> you never know. You got you got to love the internet, right? It, it's, I, I um yes, my nieces and nephews said, "Wow, I wish I could be googled like that." And and I'm looking at the clock, Doreen, and we do have to start wrapping it up. But I think what's significant here is that we have to look at history. We have to yes. look at what happened 30, 20, you know, 10 years ago to see what got us here today. 
And then we have to look at the court system. We, ha- we cannot be naive because even if this isn't us today, it could be tomorrow or it could be our sister or it could be our mom. We need to look at the court systems and pay attention and stop being so naive about what it means to go to court. But somehow or other that judge rides a white horse and is going to protect us. Not, it doesn't work that way. I don't know that it ever works that way. So we look at the history and see how we got here. Then we have to look at the court system. But then I think what you've done, the section that you have particularly focused on, is looking at the father's rights and what government has done. Because government has not saved women. It has not. Government has not saved children. And I think by some of these misguided attempts to bring good fathers back into the lives of their children, we've created a venue that enables bad fathers to do some long-term damage to their children. So that's my editorial comment, because I know you're a very research-oriented person, Doreen, and I thank you for sharing with us. Heather, I thank you for your part in um, helping educate the public and well, let's uh, all the work. other things you do. <laughs> we'll do this again. and hopefully All you can do is try. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. We'll do this again, and we'll keep up with the research, and uh, you keep up with us. Join us again next week.